Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Welcome back from a brief respite from uh, life and work. Um, did you find time to fill out your National Hockey League awards ballot whilst you were out? But of course. But of course. I slaved over that over vacation. That was a fun homework exercise. What was the category or award that gave you the most struggle? Mm, great question. Um, obviously, the Lady Bing. <laughs> I really struggle with the Lady Bing every year. Um, I ended up putting two defensemen on my ballot um, because nice. I don't think they get enough love. Yeah. Um, one might play for the Columbus Blue Jackets and the other might play for the Carolina Hurricanes. Who's to say? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Not supposed to really be on my ballot. Um, but mm-hmm. the Selkie is always one that I struggle with just because um, I never know how much to weigh offensive performance. It's a defensive award, right? Right. But it means right. you're a good defensive forward, which means that you got to be capable offensively as well. Um, right. So that's one that I really struggled with. What about you? Now, the, the Selkie was tough because it, it feels like Couturier's year, but Sorelli's got a real good case. And O'Reilly's got they were a real my good one case, too. too. Yeah, they, they're, yeah. That, that was tricky. Um, look, as, as every year, the Hart Trophy is my biggest struggle because, one, I have my own criteria for the award that's shared by others, but but it's specifically known to be mine. Uh, and two, this summer is a thing where there's 24 playoff teams, no matter how the NHL decides they want to define them. So it becomes a more complicated field, and I found myself uh, treating it as an expanded field um, versus hmm. maybe just looking at the teams that were in playoff position. I, too, don't want to spoil my ballot, uh, but I will say that once you invite certain teams that maybe were outside of the playoff bubble when the season was paused into the playoff picture, it certainly does add a bit more spotlight to certain candidates. And I'm not saying that it might be someone whose nickname has to do with, you know, whole wheat, wonder, rye. (laughs) But I'm just saying that maybe there are other candidates that I had to give a real good look to now that their teams are in the playoffs by my definition. My one thing that surprised me is I had a goalie, and I'm sure you can guess who, on my heart ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, should, I've never had that everybody. before. Yeah. Right. I, and, but I've never right, had no, that before. A, and I was like, is this correct? Because it's such a unique position, you know. But this guy, in my opinion, carried his team, was the MVP yeah. that got his team into the 2014 field. <laughs> right. And I agree with you. Like, I think, I think, you know, the people that say that goalies could be on the heart ballot every year or could be the entirety of the heart ballot in some years are correct. You don't want to overdo it with the goalies, but in certain situations like one, maybe in the province of Manitoba, uh, you, you gotta like, uh, consider the circumstances and the context. I love talking. Oh, I actually put Carter Hutton because (laughs) Marty Biron will tell us later that the Sabres don't have a goaltending (laughs) problem. So coming up on the show today, Marty Biron, Sabres analyst will provide his insight on the mess that happened in Buffalo this week and also the Sabres on the ice. Plus, Chris Peters to tell you about the worst team in the history of modern professional hockey, a story he wrote for ESPN.com this week. All that and more on this edition of ESPN on Ice. So let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. 
I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. There you are. Let's start with the Sabres. My God. On Tuesday, uh, you wrote about it for ESPN.com. Uh, Jason Botterill fired uh, by uh, Terry and Kim Pagula. Uh, three weeks after Kim Pagula gave Botterill a emphatic um, vote of confidence, saying he's our GM going forward, saying that the, she knew that that would be popular with the fans, and then adding, ah, but we have more information than the fans do. Fast forward three weeks, and he's he's on his behind, along with everybody in hockey operations, basically. Uh, both assistant GMs, gone. Uh, the entirety of the coaching staff in the American Hockey League, gone. Uh, the last two men standing, basically, as, as we watch scouts and scouting directors and everybody else falling by the wayside, are uh, Coach Ralph Kruger, who told me he doesn't really think he's going to be all that much more involved in player personnel decisions than he is already, and the new general manager of the Buffalo Sabres, Kevin Adams, a.k.a. Kevin from Kevin Business Administration. <laughs> <laughs> Joins the team. And you know, former NHL player, real bright guy. Everybody I talked to this week said this is the kind of guy that who you would expect to be an executive at some point. But never been a GM before. Coming over from the business side and taking over a team that really needs some stout hockey leadership at this point. I think. Yeah, and you know, I think it's a little too simplistic to say he's just the business guy because, as you said, he's a former player. He's a former coach. Um, was coaching for the Sabres and has been around the game for a long time. But, you know, someone planted this idea to me a couple weeks, probably months ago at this point, that he is a guy to watch out for. He was specifically talking about the president position, which Kim Pagula has essentially taken on full time and said, this is a guy that's really been sucking up to the Pagulas and he's really good <laughs> with the Pagulas. And I would not be surprised if he gets more and more responsibility. And, you know, as I'm texting people yesterday about this move, you know, I'm reading one text right now. That's been an open secret. He's been setting up to be Brutus for a few years now. Um, <laughs> this, this is the guy, right? And I think what this boils down to, um, it is money. There is definitely a money aspect of it. This almost yeah. seemed like an emergency cost-saving situation where we know the Pagulers are trying to streamline their business. Um, they're going to people they trust. You see that they fired one GM and two assistant GMs and just replaced them with one GM for now. I don't know how they're going to do the draft. Chris Peters will join us later and does make a good point. Yes, they got rid of their entire scouting department, but that's all the scouting work that they did is not proprietary to them. It's proprietary to the Sabres. They can just call on that. Um, but this is just a big bundle of dysfunction. And if we look at this from a bird's eye view, a couple of years ago, we're saying, oh, the Sabres are turning a corner. They have owners that are committed. They're spending money. Um, you know, they signed Jack Eichel to this long term deal. Jeff Skinner. Oh, wow. They finally have the compliment to him. Casey Middlestack could be the answer. One, two down the center. And then all of a sudden we're like, wait, how many GMs have they cycled through? How many coaches have they cycled through? Are they more embarrassing than the Ottawa Senators at this point because of their dysfunction? And unfortunately, the reputation in the league right now for the Sabres isn't great. And just one last thing I'll say is, um, you know, as someone said to me in the league yesterday, they're going to have a hard time convincing people this is a good way, to, good place to work after this. They are not yeah. building a good reputation across the NHL. Yeah, especially because it seems like the one the one part of the Pakulas that you'd like, which is their money, isn't going to be flowing as freely as it was. Uh, the answer to your question is six head coaches, four general managers, and zero playoff appearances since 2011, aka when Terry Pagula bought the team. And look, I don't think you could you could emphasize enough 
the change in tone from Terry Pagula in nine years about his backing of this team and how stark it is. Go back to 2011. We're at that point, four years removed from Chris Drury and Danny Briere leaving as free agents, a psychologically damaging moment for that franchise. The moment in which Sabres fans are like, we are a small market team that is going to struggle to compete in this league because our top players are going to leave for bigger contracts. In steps in Terry Pagula. He's a fan, loves the Sabres. On top of that, he's a billionaire. Not only a billionaire, Emily, a fracking billionaire. Making his money hey, from natural gas. He bought my alma mater or a hockey team and threw in an extra $10 million to get them a women's team, too. We'll take Precisely. that money. Precisely. <laughs> Loads of money. And this is a whole new thing for Sabres fans. Like, okay, we got Daddy Warbucks now on our side. A bulging wallet. We're going to compete. And they don't only think that because he's loaded. They think that because Terry Pagula said, money's no object. We are going to fund player personnel. We are going to fund scouting. We are going to fund coaching. We're going to fund all these things. There's never going to be a point in which the Buffalo Sabres are going to be hurting for money because I'm here now. And the objective is to win the Stanley Cup. Nine years later, Tuesday, firing Jason Botterill, elevating Kevin Adams, Terry Pagula talked about economics a frightening amount. Now, granted, a lot of it has to do with the global pandemic, downturn in all of his businesses, uh, arenas being shuttered, not really knowing if there's going to be fans in the arenas next season. There are outside forces that are obviously compelling Terry Pagula to be in a cost-saving way. But if you haven't made the playoffs in nine years in a, in a league that is designed to get teams into the playoffs – Especially this Every one. other franchise in this league, including an expansion team, made the playoffs in the nine years the Sabres have not. They let in 24 teams into the playoffs this year. The Sabres were the 25th. Can, wait, can I build so on that point for a second? Yes. The day the NHL stopped, you know, the Sabres were supposed to play the Canadians. And if they had won in regulation... The Sabres would have had a 500 uh, percentage points uh, win record, and the Canadians would have been at 493, and the Sabres would have been in. And exactly. Jason Botterill likely would have had a job, and we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. Mm-hmm. But if what if and butts were candy and nuts, I'd be a Snickers bar, Emily. The point is, is that if you can't manage a team to success, and you're not spending money anymore, what are you good for? The thing that Pagula was great was that he was willing to spend money, sometimes insanely. Philly Leano, Christian Erhoff. That was fun. Now, if you're not paying your personnel, you're not gonna, you're talking about, you know, they went from talking about the, the, the mantra a few years ago, 2017, when they fired Tim Murray, one of many bodies on the side of the road. The Pagula doctrine was discipline, structure, communication and character. You know what the Pakula doctrine was on this call on Tuesday? Effective, efficient, and economic. We've gone from the soaring rhetoric of structure and character to being one of the bobs from office space trying to downsize the company. So this is where the Sabres are. It, I, I wrote about them in, in February in the column about them being the NHL's biggest disaster, they found a way to go to a lower level. They found a, a, a trap door that they crawled through to go to a lower level, firing the entirety of the team and then having Kim Bagula on the call saying it's not a rebuild. 
you gut renoed the, the hockey ops department. That was not a rebuild. Do you have, do you take any solace in any of this? Do you do you have any optimism in any of this? Um, the optimism I would say is if Jason Botterill really was going to be a lame duck GM this year, and if they weren't going to have a miraculous turnaround next year, at least they cut bait now, started completely fresh, um, and can build from their vision. That said, I'm not sure I totally believe in their vision, so I don't know if I totally take solace in that. What about you? Yeah, I don't take I don't take solace in their vision either because I I think the the way of the world in the NHL is to create a cabinet of smart people and have a lot of voices and bring in voices from the outside. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be introspective. Um, The Capitals were introspective when they hired Brian McClellan, but they weren't myopic. They looked outside the organization. They talked to other candidates. They did a full exploration. The Sabres GM search lasted a phone call to the guy down the hallway. <laughs> like That's all it was. It's not as if there isn't a reason for them to make this move. You just can't make the move three weeks after saying he's your guy. And that the critics that said he shouldn't be your guy were wrong because you had more information than them. Now you look like you don't know what you're talking about. Look it. There's there's always another side to the story. So we invited Marty Biron on. In full disclosure, Marty is a Sabres analyst who works for the team. But he does provide a lot of insight here. Um, so so here's Marty. Joining us now on the line, Marty Biron, our good friend, uh, Buffalo Sabres analyst, to help make uh, heads or tails of everything that's gone on in Buffalo this week. Marty, thanks for joining us again. What was your uh, reaction to... Uh, for lack of a better term, the bloodletting that happened in hockey operations for the Sabres this week. Yeah, obviously yesterday was a tough day for a lot of people that I know, co-workers and even friends, uh, so that's never easy. Uh, you know what? I mean, I expected maybe a move to be done at the general manager position a month ago, three weeks ago, uh, at the end of the Sabres season because they were not going to be part of the return to play. So, you know, to have that happen yesterday was obviously surprising. But I guess when you take in, in factor the performance of the team, the way the roster has been constructed and where the roster had been going, um, I wasn't surprised that a move was done at the general ma- uh, uh, manager position. Although I have to say this, um, I played with Jason Bottrell both in Rochester and Buffalo I've known him for a long time. He's an incredibly smart hockey person and will do some fantastic things in the National Hockey League and whatever he does next. It just so happened that, you know, it didn't work here in Buffalo and maybe his hesitation to, to take move forward. He tried the Ryan O'Reilly trade. It didn't work. Um, he tried a lot of things, but it, it didn't seem to work. So I think it was for the better of the organization to probably go in a different direction that way. When it comes to the scouting and the hockey operation department, that's that's hard to do. But mm. the the Bulls did pretty much the same thing with the Buffalo Bills uh, when they hired uh, Brendan Bean. They they totally revamped their scouting, their football operation department. So and it worked for the Bills. So maybe this is going to work for the Sabers as well. 
Marty, the name now everyone is focusing on is Kevin Adams, and he's been around the Sabres organization for a while. He's been around hockey for a while. I'm just curious how well you know him and what you think he's going to do in this role. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are expecting, okay, he might start shopping up this roster and making trades and, and signing guys or, or, or dealing guys. What do you expect? Oh, I know Kevin really well. Uh, he's a Buffalo kid, uh, and every summer I would see him, skate with him, play around a golf with him. Uh, I've worked close with him for the last seven years when it was with the Harbor Center, the Academy of Hockey, and within the Sabres organization. I can tell you this with Kevin. Um, he runs his, his department, his business, the same way that players run a locker room. Everybody's got to be moving in the same direction. It's not four or five guys you know, going left, four or five guys going right. Uh, it's everybody moving forward, just like a locker room is, just like a, a winning locker room should be. And he was in a winning locker room with the Carolina Hurricanes in 06. And he's learned a lot from Rod Brindamore and Ron Francis and, and a lot of those guys. So I, I think he has a lot of experience. Uh, the one thing, obviously, now is he's got to put a plan together. I, I, I don't see him as the kind of guy that's going to go and completely rip apart this, this roster. I think he's very methodical. He takes a lot of notes. He asks a lot of questions to the right people. And, um, and, and I've really enjoyed working with him. And I think the last year, the administrative side of the business with the Sabres have enjoyed working with Kevin Adams, uh, you know, and in his vision. So I'm not expecting, you know, big things to happen right now, but I think he'll make a couple of very, I don't want to say significant, but important move for the organization. He knows very well, like everybody else know that there's holes at forward with this roster and they need to be filled up. So you, you look at your tools and you look at your, your trades and, you know, they've got an over a surplus of defensemen. They've got a first round pick available. There's, there's, there's things that you can put on the table to make your roster better at forward. And I think he'll take the time, but he will do something with it. Marty, so let's look at the timeline for a second here. Um, Kim Pagula came out and said that Botterill was going to be their GM. She said that the team had more information than the fans, that if the fans were upset, they had more information than the fans as to why Jason should remain the GM. Um, and then three weeks later, he's fired. And he's not just fired, like, everybody's fired. Um, do you get the sense when you when you hear Terry, because you watched the, the press conference yesterday, when you hear Terry talk about a lack of communication, a lack of being on the same page, does it boil down to the to the idea that maybe Jason Botterill just didn't want to be the guy that fires everybody, and that and that and, and that was the the split between ownership and and Jason, considering he was their GM going forward all of three weeks ago? No, I don't think so. I think what happened is with this pandemic, and already the Sabers were looking at making change internally with the structure of the organization in the last twelve months. Uh, the organization grew grew really big and really fast with the Bills and the Pagula Sports and Entertainment and the Sabres and the Buffalo Bandits and the Rochester Americans and the Nighthawks and the restaurants. And listen, there's a lot of different arms to the, the, the Pagula enterprise in the sports business. And it grew really quick and really fast. So they were looking at, okay, how can we you know, redesign everything and, and, and make it more efficient? Now the pandemic hits. 
you've got to deal with the economic aspect of it all and what's going to happen with the players and with your staff and with the NHL. All of a sudden, there's a vote and the 24 team resumed to play happens. You find out your season's over. I just think that at that time, the Pagulas, you know, were saying, well, you know, we were dealing with so many other things that we didn't really get a chance to do a thorough examination of our hockey operation department. And so they did take the last three weeks to really look into it. And again, I think what I see, and it's not Jason Bottrell's fault, uh, because I think, again, he's really smart at, at being a hockey mind, but I think there was a lot of different direction where the scouting, the hockey operation, the Rochester Americans, the Buffalo Sabres, and all that, it was going in all kinds of directions. And what the Pagulas want and what every good organization wants is to go into one direction. And over the last three weeks, they, they, they saw arrows going left, right, up, down, sideways. It was, it was <laughs> probably not the way they thought it was. And so when they studied the cases and were looking at it, they said, this is not good. This is not uh, going to be successful, and we've got to make a change. Now, the on-ice product was, was a big part of it as well. And maybe Bottrell would have survived this, uh, you know, by being able to get this summer to rebuild the roster. But when they looked at the whole hockey operation side, and ultimately Jason Bottrell's at the top of it, I think it was going in too many different directions. They had to make a change. Marty, I'm really curious for your perspective on this, because I think if we look at this big picture, the reason Jason Botterill lost his job, the reason so many people lost their jobs right now um, in the Buffalo Sabres organization is because they have a league-high nine-year playoff drought. They just haven't been good for the last decade. And I'm curious from your perspective, how much of that falls on the fact that they just haven't had steady goaltending, especially the last few years? I, I really don't think the goaltending with the Sabres is an issue. And I know everybody's talking about it, and they're bringing it up, and you know, Carter Hutton was brought in, but is, is Carter Hutton a, a, a through number one goaltender in the National Hockey League? I don't think so. I think he's he's what I was, a serviceable number one, but probably better suited as a support guy, a backup, but an experienced backup that will get some success. But over the last three years, I think the transition was going to be towards Linus Olmark. And I really believe Linus Olmark is on that, that projection, that trajectory, that he's going to be better than average. He's going to be really good as a number one goalie. Will he be Braden Holby, Marc-Andre Fleury, Gary Price type? I don't think so, but he's still going to be very, very good. Um, so I think that's why not this season was hard because Allmark, I think, was going to play 50, 55 games. He was injured, and then he, you know, he didn't get to finish the season. Uh, but I, I do think that the goaltending position is the least of the worries right now with the Sabres. They've got to score more goals. Uh, you know, being 25th, 22nd in goals four per game is not going to cut it trying to, uh, to get in the playoffs. So I'm not, I'm not concerned with their goaltending. I think they've got a, a good tandem. Um, I know it's not the popular opinion, but I, I look at it. I study them every day. I watch. All 69 games this year, all 82 the year before, all 82 the year before. And I see steady progression with Linus Holmark that tells me he'll get the job done. All right, last one for me. Uh, I really, really feel bad for Jack Eichel. 
I, I, I tremendously feel bad for him. I feel bad for him because uh, I can't think of another superstar young player that has had more general managers than playoff appearances in his first five years in the league. I feel bad for him because he clearly cares most of everybody about this team being good. I think he's been very candid about that. And I feel bad for him because I think there's a lot of people in Buffalo right now that think he's like a GM or coach killer because the team gave Botterill a vote of confidence. Eichel two days later says, I don't like the direction of the team, and then Botterill's fired three weeks later. Are we? Should we be worried about Jack? Should we be worried at some point about Jack pulling the chute <laughs> and jumping out of the plane and trying to go someplace else? No, I wouldn't. Um, Jack is committed to have success here in Buffalo, and I can tell you 100% that his comments were actually glorified and celebrated within the organization and Ralph Berger as opposed to say, eee, I don't like that. We better, like, hide them. We better, like, try to bury those comments away and uh, and never talked about it. The organization really jumped on board with Jack being a leader and, and saying he's fed up of it and he wants to win and he wants to win here in Buffalo. So I know a few years back people said, well, Jack Eichel wanted Bilesma fired and, and he got fired. Listen, I know 100% true that, that Jack Eichel did not get Bilesma fired and Jack Eichel did not get Bottrell fired. Uh, Jack Eichel wants to win and so should every NHL player and every leader and every superstar. Uh, so I'm, I'm okay with his comment and the organization was okay with his comment. Uh, and I'm not, the fans should not be worried that Jack Eichel is going to want to jump ship. I think, yes, he's got a big voice in the organization, but it's more for leadership and to make sure that the organization and the players know that, uh, that he wants to win and he wants to win here. Marty Biron, thank you so much for joining us, man. We do appreciate it. And, uh, looking forward to hearing you analyzing the sport. And when they when we hit well, the thank ice again. you, I look forward to seeing you on more Zoom call. It was it was great <laughs> to see your face on the Zoom call. Yeah, but Marty, you didn't join the Zoom call because you didn't like the fact that you haven't gotten a haircut in three and a half months, right? <laughs> well, yes, and you know what? I, when this was happening, I think I woke up in a little bit of a uh, uh, I don't want to say a panic, but with an email, a phone call, a this and that. So I was you know. I was not in my best. I usually wear suit, shirt, and tie on TV. Let's just put it that way. It was not at my best. Well, you, 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 I mean, you, you didn't know, you didn't know what I was wearing on my bottoms, Marty. So it could have really been anything. Uh, who's to say? Oh, too much information. I don't want to know. <laughs> All right, Marty. Thank you so much, man. Have a thank good you. one, guys. Our thanks to Marty Biron. Trying to break down the mess in Buffalo. But there's other messes to be broken down, Emily. Look, the messy path on the way to restarting the season. Uh, what's the late? By the t- I think the latest is that we're going to learn about the hubs maybe next week. But what is? Where are we in hubland right now? Insofar as the NHL looking at where to where to restart the season if the players decide they want to play. <laughs> great, great uh, disclaimer there. Uh, it does appear that the hurdles for Canada could be cleared. Justin Trudeau has come out in the last couple of days talking about working with the NHL. Um, the obvious issue is that 14-day quarantine period, which the NHL once waived, it's mandatory. I do think that could be resolved, which leads us to believe there will be one Canadian site and one U.S. site. Um, we've gone over this a million times. The NHL just wants it that way. Um, it's cheaper to stage games in Canada. It's a very Canadian league. They just kind of feel like it's fair. 
Um, I do still believe Vegas is the favorite in the U.S. for a variety of reasons. We've got some reports in the Las Vegas Review Journal that MGM is even holding hotels um, for the NHL um, through July, um, knowing that they would want to go there in August. Um, I've heard two cities, though, that have picked up a lot of steam. One is Los Angeles, and it would be mm-hmm. in the L.A. Live complex. Um, that makes a ton of sense because, as you texted me, players love going to L.A. Um, there's mm-hmm. enough entertainment options in there. Um, and they also could use the Ducks practice facility, which is brand new, tons of sheets of ice. Um, that would make a lot of sense. And also Chicago, which I am still befuddled by uh, because I live here and I'm like, we're not really containing coronavirus all that well. It, it's happening, but I just I have a hard time seeing it here. But um, I have heard that picks up a lot of steam. It's another city the NHL has a really longstanding relationship with. They now do their player media tour here every year. They did the draft here, what, two or three years ago. Um, they had long Stanley Cup runs. Players like the entertainment options here, the restaurants specifically. Um, and then as for Canada, you know, if it is a West Coast city, which we're assuming, and I'm assuming it's going to be Vegas, you'd think Toronto because they would like to have two time zones. But I wouldn't count out either Vancouver or Edmonton. Yeah, um, the Chicago one's interesting. The LA one is really interesting. I've been in it, that at that new uh, Anaheim rink. It is awesome. Like it, it, it's it three sheets, awesome. gorgeous. Uh, it's sort of off on its own. Uh, obviously, for those of the, those of us who know about the LA uh, market, bit of a drive. And, and and a little bit of dicey situation with LA traffic at all times, even during a pandemic. Um, yeah, but not but not get necessarily, those, you know, escorted buses, and it'll be yeah, fine. Not a deal killer. The cost um, is no issue for the NHL at this point. They're spending thirty thousand dollars <laughs> on a, a day's worth of tests. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, you know, it's I, I think it's interesting now that we're getting drilling down on what the NHL hubs might be at a time when the NBA is. You know, has chosen Orlando as the site for their season restart, but all of these details about the perks the the NBA players would be getting if they go. They're all inclusive vacation, you mean? Yeah, I mean (laughs) we're talking, uh, you know, and then it's uh, like DJ parties, manicurists, yeah, comedy shows. Like uh, they're going to get to see Black Widow before everybody else. Apparently, Um, it's. I wonder, like, do NHL players cast a jealous eye at these guys, and you're like? Looking at all this NBA, you know, basically like the rider that a celebrity would get. And then they're like, or, you know, we might go to Edmonton. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, what are they thinking right now looking at the NBA stuff? It's funny. I was texting with a player last week and I was like, what do you want? Like, what would make you happy during this? And he's like, you know, what would be cool if they just like bought out a restaurant the entire time and only NHL people could go there. Like that's yeah. their idea of luxury. Um, and right. I think that hockey players in general, a little simpler, um, things are nicer, but that's the level of amenities they're looking for. I did hear though that like one of the things the player told me is like, I'm not crazy about going to Edmonton. And I do think the league is kind of listening to the players like, Hey, you got to pick sexier cities. Sorry, I think that's. Part- I'm already offending all all Canadian cities. But I mean, days. that's it's legit. And also, Edmonton's hotel capacity is probably not going to be what they need for to have 24. To, uh, I'm sorry, to have 12 teams at, at one of the sites. So, uh, listen, I I think I think your point's taken. It's not to slight Edmonton. It's to speak to the idea that they need to make this as compelling as possible to bring the players back to to do this. And that speaks to location. That speaks to amenities. I've, I too have heard the restaurant idea. I think in Vegas, that's something that's very doable considering there's mm-hmm. like, you know, eight restaurants in every casino hotel. Um, 
But I also but think it speaks be to some- feasible in a city like Chicago, though, just because sure. we're slowly reopening right now. You get one or two nice steakhouses and like, hey, you're going to make your money back um, from some of the money you've lost. Not all the two point two five billion this city's lost in restaurant revenue the last couple of months. But I digress. Does the Weber Grill place? Is that still open? The one that has the actual Weber Grill uh, on the sign outside? I went to that place once. That was a, 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 a cheesy touristy steakhouse they could probably do. Um, I can't say I frequent it much. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that you would have. Uh, I was a visitor. Um, so, like, they have to make it compelling for the players to want to come back. Um, and part of that equation is something that we wrote about this week on the site, which is the family issue, which remains the biggest issue right now for the players, the, the ones that have families. Uh, what do you do? How do you get them involved? Uh, when are you going to be able to see your family? You know, for the players whose uh, partners are pregnant, uh, when are you going to be able to see your newborn? Uh, all that stuff. That's a huge issue. And it might speak to the sort of like uh, differences in, in, in style between the NHL and the NBA where the NBA is like, you know, who, can we have DJ parties? And the NHL is like, when do I get to see my son? But like, that's a real issue for the NHL right now is how do these, when are they going to be able to see their families? The one thing I heard, you know, kind of secondhand was the idea of like, the deeper you get into the postseason, the more opportunity yes. you get to see your family, which kind of and reminds that's something me the of, NBA, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's something the NBA is doing. Um, I believe, and I have to check this again, but in the first round, no family members are allowed in the NBA. Once they get to the second mm-hmm. round, family members are allowed to come. I would not be shocked if that's similar in the NHL. It's like, okay, this first round of 24, no one can come. But once we pair it down to the actual, quote, playoffs, then your wife yeah. and kitties can come on the road. And that's amazing because that basically means that they're structuring their uh, their hub city format on reality television, like Survivor and MasterChef, where the deeper you get into the competition, <laughs> then you get to see your family again. They come in and help you cook or help you start a they fire come for or a something. Challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Uh, you get a so blindfold always... and do an old family recipe of taping your <laughs> stick the way Grandpa used to. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm um, really so, losing it here. So there's that, and and so hopefully they can figure out that issue because that remains a big one. Now the other issue for the NHL obviously is the cba talks they're ongoing and we reported on monday there's some there's some good news i mean i don't i don't as we look towards the the mlb and and nba and their varying degrees of of war being waged between the league and its players um we we know for a fact that the the players and the league have a sort of have an understanding on the range they're looking at for escrow how long it's going to go for insofar as filling the gap revenue wise that the the owners lost this season and probably next season. We know that there is a sort of an understanding on where the salary cap is going to be artificially placed and delinked from revenue. Um, and, and sort of like how many, what, what, how it'll rise over the next couple of years. Like there is common ground for some of these issues, which is really good news. If you're somebody who doesn't want to see labor war, um, my problem is I do want to see labor war. The players have never had more wind at their back in a negotiation with Gary Bettman. As someone close to the players said to me recently, go up to July 9th and they'd be like, all right, training camps tomorrow. If you give us X, Y, Z, like just, just play the cards you have, man. I, you'll never have more leverage than you will have right now. And this is obviously. The Greg Wyshynski who grew up in a union house with my dad being, you know, I'd be, I'd be EW in New York. Like, sure. But, I, you know, I've also been the guy that's watched the, the players just take it on the chin on a, on a, on a semi-annual basis for the entirety of my career. 
And this is the one time they've got a little bit of pushback, and I don't think they're going to do it. So you're pretty much saying, give me baseball? I want what baseball has? I mean, sure. I mean, maybe that's what I'm saying. But 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 the thing is is that, you know, the players are, are always very cognizant of what the impressions are about what they're doing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. greedy players. They don't want to be greedy players. These guys will have to go back to their cottages during the summer. They don't want their neighbors being like, you, got, you guys are greedy, you ruined hockey. I feel like now it's like if they held, if they held the line and said, we need XYZ to feel comfortable coming back to play in a global pandemic, I feel like there'd be at least 50% of the people that are like, good on you. You know? Why should you be forced to do that if it's not to your, to your liking? But I don't know. I, I, I think I think the potential for labor peace is very high in the NHL right now mm-hmm. with them and their players. I, I don't know if you get the same vibe. No, I think so too. But then I also think back to when we asked Donald Fair, hey, would you consider your uh, conversation with the league being collaborative? And he gives us a real sassy answer of, you have no idea. <laughs> Let's talk about one of the worst teams in the history of hockey. With Chris Peters. And now joining us on the line is a friend of yours, a friend of ours. It's Chris Peters from ESPN. And the reason we wanted to have Chris on today is he just reported this epic story about a team that went 145 and 2, was outscored 304 to 94. They are the worst team in professional hockey. It is the Battle Creek Rumblebees. And Chris, first you got to tell our audience how you came across the story. Uh, well, hi, Greg and Emily. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's a fun story. <laughs> I don't know if, uh, if hockey fans remember there was a, 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 a line brawl slash near bench clearing brawl where eventually the head coaches got into a fight. And this was between two teams in the federal hockey league, federal prospects hockey league, which included the Battle Creek Rumblebees. And so, you know, I hadn't really heard of the league. I, I knew of the league, but I hadn't really checked in on it recently. And I was surprised to see that it had grown to ten teams. And uh, and and so I, I went to their standings, and sticking out like a sore thumb was this team that had one win. And uh, I think at that point they were like one forty and something, one forty and two or something like that. And I had to know everything about it. I, I needed. I, I, it became an obsession. I had I had to know about the Battle Creek <laughs> Rumblebees. So. Um, so that ended up being a, 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 an important thing for me to, uh, to report. <laughs> so I dove right in and, uh, talked to a lot of people and became especially fascinated by everything I saw. In your conversations with, uh, people, and you, and you talked to a wide swath of people for the story, but what were, what were some of the more eye-opening revelations about the history of the, uh, worst team in modern professional hockey? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, first off, it was just kind of discovering, you know, had this happened before. Um, and, you know, the FPHL is essentially the lowest rung of professional hockey. So, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily a league that's going to get a lot of coverage unless something monumental happens. And this happened to be, you know, monumental in my eyes. And you have to go all the way back to, to 1948-49, and there was a team called the Windsor Ryan Creeks that played in the old International Hockey League, and they, they actually had zero wins in their season. Um, and I went through old news clippings just to find out more about that team, too. Um, and, I mean, they they did have six ties, though, so they actually ended up with one more point than on the poor Rumblebees. Um, but, but in the conversations that I did have with um, – with with the people is you know there are a couple of things that stood out that that I I hope came through in the story too is one that despite everything 
they still had some really passionate fans, although they were very small in number. I think their average attendance was somewhere around the 353 range. Um, and they also, you know, the players just continued to kind of press on. They, they went through a lot. I think we end up discovering they had about 53 different players dressed for them this season. Um, and, you know, the, the guy that had to put it all together, Adam Steele, uh, was, you know, he was up against it from the very beginning and and just kept finding guys that, that wanted to play. Some of them had never had an opportunity before. Some of them had been in the league before and, and just kind of were in lower roles. And they just kept soldiering on despite the fact that the losses just continued to pile up. And, I mean, when, when you give up 304 goals, I think the, the next closest team had given up 98 fewer goals than they did. So, you know, it's just, it, it made me wonder how do you get up and go to the rink every day knowing that you're pretty much that bad? And they found a way, I guess. <laughs> when I was learning journalism in college, way back when I was a young youth, we also talked about the mom test. Uh, if you go to an event, like, what's the one thing you would go home and tell your mom about, like, that would really stuck out to you? So, like, if you were taking the mom test with a story, um, you know, maybe it's the, the fight between the coaches. But if you have one other detail that's just so absurd that you would, you would have to share, what would it be? Well, I, I think the fact that their one win came on the other, the opposing team's guaranteed win night. <laughs> so, you know, like, <laughs> that's it. That's the mom test. You passed. Yeah. yeah. So, so they play the Elmira Enforcers. And Elmira is a long, long time minor hockey league market. It's been in the ECHL. They've had teams at various leagues, and, and their owner, Robbie Nichols, actually gave our, you know, the Rumblebees GM his first job in pro hockey back when the Elmira Jackals were, were still in the East Coast League. And, uh, and, and you know, they get like 3,000 to 5,000 fans a game. I mean, like, they're, they're really popular. And um, I actually just got a message, too, that the other teams in the league, some of their fans, like after their game, they actually ran to a bar nearby to watch the, the YouTube stream of the game when they heard that Battle Creek was winning against Elmira. <laughs> and and he, said, he said the bar just absolutely erupted after, after the, the, the final buzzer sounded. And, you know, the fact that, you know, the guys were – <laughs> some of the guys were in tears in the locker room having lost 24 straight games and they finally get a win. And for Adam, the general manager who, who also ended up taking over as the head coach shortly into the season, you know, it was, it was extra special for him because that's where he got his start. And, and Robbie Nichols, his old boss was actually on the bench because they had to dress their head coach because there were so many injuries. And it was so funny that, you know, I know Greg knows Robbie and, and he he told Greg that that it was his coach's fault because he missed about five or six scoring chances in the game. So uh, you know it was just one of those things that I, that I'll, I'll certainly not forget. Uh, the story though has a very um, sort of melancholy and almost macabre uh, twist to the end of it, though, doesn't it? As far as the future of the Rumblebees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, basically the team was formed so that the so the FPHL could get to an even number of teams. So it was more out of necessity than desire by anybody to form the team. But they, you know, they. I think to to Adam's credit that they, you know, he tried to make it work as best he could, and as as a guy that had to wear so many hats. But you know, he basically, you know, I talked to him recently, and he, he basically told me, you know, I got a call from from an opposing team general manager and he asked me who i should take in the dispersal draft <laughs> he goes excuse me <laughs> and and uh that is how adam found out that his team was folding 
and uh, which is really unfortunate. And you know, I think I think he's such a positive person. I mean, he talked a lot about you know how the team, even though they were losing, they were still improving. Guys were getting opportunities, and you know, some guys were going to be able to play at, at other levels, like the SPHL, or you know, some guys are trying to go to Europe. So he's very proud of the fact that he gave guys opportunities. But you know, it's kind of a slap in the face at the end when you're trying to do everything you can to keep things together despite a, you know a shoestring budget and uh, obviously they got you know there was no expansion draft for them to acquire players with experience i mean most of the guys were rookies and so the you know the the team folds and then you know they didn't have a good relationship with the arena in battle creek they didn't have you know there just were so many things up against them that it was almost inevitable i mean it's just it's crazy to me too like you know you have this season. I think the only way it could have possibly ended was through a global pandemic. I mean, <laughs> I mean how does it get much worse than that? Chris, I want to switch gears for a sec because everyone should just check out the story at this point. I don't want to give any more away. Um, but one <laughs> of the things you do for any, for ESPN and you do so well is you are a draft expert. That's, you know, your bread and butter, what you spend all your working on. And I'm curious, you know, now that teams have all this extra time, how are they approaching it? You know, I know a lot of teams did their Zoom interviews with prospects, you know, like a couple weeks ago, months ago. I mean, some teams can't do that right now. Like the Buffalo Sabres have no scouting departments. I don't know what they're doing. Uh, but what does the next couple weeks look like for NHL teams? Do you see them like moving around their draft boards or is everything kind of settled because no one's really playing hockey right now? Yeah, I think largely teams know what they're going to do at this point. Um, and, you know, they've done so much work. I mean, you know, if there are extra guys to dig in on, they certainly will. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think particularly with the Sabres, you know, they, they pretty much let go. It sounds like almost their entire amateur scouting staff, um, you know, based on the guys that I know, you know, most of them have lost their jobs. And, and, and so, but, but, but their reports are still there. You know, they're still, they can still use their reports because those belong to the team. Um, and, and so, a lot of teams use video, as you mentioned, the Zoom calls. I think that, you know, they're just doing their extra due diligence as much as they can. But I think one of the concerns at this point is if the draft moves into next season um, and other leagues are starting up, you, you think about guys like Alexi Lafreniere, who, you know, has pretty much done all he can in junior hockey. What is he going to do to start next season? Um, you know, he's already been off for X number of months, and, you know, he's not really sure what – what is going to be next for him. Um, and that's the same for a lot of guys. And they're just kind of in limbo. Um, we don't know what next season will look like. And, and so you have to decide how much are we going to take into account how a guy looks next, you know, at the beginning of next season, if the draft actually ends up being held after junior hockey and European pro hockey starts. I mean, is, is are the guys that play in Europe going to get an extra couple of games in uh, of views? And I think that's something that teams had concern about. And, and that's why I think a lot of the amateur scouts were secretly rooting for the June draft to stay. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's very much up in the air right now uh, in terms of how that's going to impact things. But most teams have done their work and there's no games that they can build off of. Um, so it's just a matter of, you know, getting those last extra views in through video and, and video services and doing everything you possibly can to make sure that, that you're making the best decision. And one of the things that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see is how much video scouting becomes part of the repertoire of teams that was already starting for some, uh, where mm-hmm. you're taking guys, you know, not, you don't want to have them travel as much. So, uh, we'll see what, we'll see what happens with that because obviously that's a huge expenditure for NHL teams and, and this kind of shifted gears a little bit. So there's a lot that's going to happen in the amateur scouting realm. Uh, but yeah, fascinating season. No, no question. All right. Last one. Quick fire. 
doesn't matter the teams. We don't know the lottery yet. Who's your top five? Top five of the draft prospects? Yep. Or the top. Yep. All right. Well, Lexi Lafreniere. Okay. Uh, Quentin Byfield. Part of that kid. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems, yep. seems like he's yep. good. Tim the German, yeah. who was okay. successful. Uh, at, at, number, at number four, we've got Lucas Raymond, super skilled Swede. And mm-hmm. at number five, it's, it's been flip-flopping for me, but as of right now, it's Cole Perfetti, excellent playmaker, and also the Scholastic Player of the Year in the OHL. So uh, a smart kid on top of being exceptionally talented at hockey. So that's my, that's my top five at the moment. Chris, you're a gentleman and a scholar. We thank you for joining us. And uh, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, yeah, you can find me at Chris M. Peters, similar to the Emily M. Kaplan. Uh, M club, M club. Yep. M club. And, uh, yeah. And obviously ESPN plus and ESPN.com be churning out more content. And obviously as, as soon as the draft kind of comes into the picture, there'll be a lot more there, but, and, and also be sure to check out the top 100 draft rankings, which are out and, and could, could potentially be shuffled a little bit if I, you know, change my mind, like has happened. So, yeah, but, but I uh, definitely appreciate you guys having me on, and it's uh, always a pleasure to uh, to be able to chat with my uh, fellow ESPNers. Indeed, and congrats on the Rumblebee story, man. It was a real good read. Everybody should check it out. Thanks, Chris. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks to Chris Peters for telling us about the Battle Creek Rumblebees, not Bumblebees, Emily. Rumblebees. Because they rumble. They fight. Uh, no Phil Kessel loves hot dogs this week. Did not find a media take that I thought was heinous enough to... Fill that job, category. Media. Good job, the media. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there's probably some Edmontonian uh, rant about Leon Drysaitel I could have found. But I mean, I, honestly, you know, there's only so many times you can go to that well. So we'll go to listener mail instead. Uh, Joshua Grenning wants to know: Will the Islanders play in Nassau Coliseum next season, or will they have to go back to Brooklyn due to uh, uh, Progorov's uh, shuttering of the arena indefinitely? Russian guy owns the Nassau Coliseum, shuttered the arena because uh, it was losing so much money with no events going on. And four months ago, Governor Cuomo uh, said that uh, Nassau Coliseum would host all the Islanders' home games for 2021 season. If, if the arena's not open, that can't happen. Logic would dictate we might be looking at the Islanders back in Brooklyn for one season before they go to Belmont. I can't believe you didn't use this as your Phil Kessel's Hot Dogs of the Week, but Larry Brooks did put out a column. Could James Dolan save the Islanders Coliseum? Suggesting that James Dolan should step in and uh, keep the Islanders afloat in Long Island. So never never it's, lose hope of Islanders fans. I don't know what would be worse, playing in Brooklyn or that. Well, keep in <laughs> mind that I try not to go to the Larry Brookswell either too many times. But I, I do think it's interesting, though, because James Dolan at one point uh, was in talks to potentially build, help finance and build. I don't know if it actually happened or not. The Belmont Arena, and there was a whole hubbub about that too. But hey, listen, business is business, man. I watch billions. Sometimes you have to cross enemy lines to go and, and make that that quan. Iron Caniac wants to know: Realistically, do you think the Winter Classic and Stadium Series games for next season will be will still be played as scheduled? Good question. My theory, my working theory at this point, and because Gary Bettman kind of alluded to this, and I do think that everything he does say is calculated. I really do. I would not be shocked if we begin next season with the Winter Classics. Mm-hmm. And maybe the Stadium Series do take a pause, especially because that's such a fan-driven event. We need those fans in those arenas, and we don't think that we're going to have a mass amount of fans in the arena before a vaccine. 
Um, but I would not be shocked if we begin next season with a Winter Classic. Uh, all right, time for puck headlines. Uh, Dateline Seattle. The NHL expansion team updates us on construction delays, pushing the opening of the new key arena into uh, deep into summer 2021. Uh, and apparently the team name is still percolating. They're still looking into trademarks and, and names and, and that kind of thing. And now they're talking about maybe we don't know until uh, the fall. What uh, what do you make of all this Seattle news this week as a, as a Seattle file uh, in our coverage? So the arena is fine for hockey uh, purposes. The, it should not affect anything with the Seattle Kraken getting on the ice or whatever they may be called. <laughs> it would affect the Seattle Storm or the WNBA team. They were hoping they could get back in there that summer. They might have to find an alternative place to play for another couple months. As for the team name, I was told in mid-May, like, it's imminent. Like, this could come in the next two weeks. It's just these trademark issues. And then... The things happened that happened in this country over the last couple of weeks. I was told this week there's, we're not announcing it around June 19th. That's just not happening. Um, and I do now think that we are looking at a situation where the timing isn't right. The timing isn't right. Why not just wait until the fall? Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you know, they've been pretty cautious and very respectful about their timing on things. So you have to imagine that's the timeline. Dateline face shields. Every epidemiologist I've talked to thinks that face shields are a good idea, not only in the NHL, but also in the NFL, to collect the spittle and the saliva and the snot that comes from players in their uh, competing. But, according to the Associated Press, the NHL will not restart its season with players wearing full face shields. Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly said he doesn't anticipate any mandatory equipment changes to ensure player safety. I think this is one of those situations where there is so much on the table between the NHL and the PA that trying to push for that extra safety protocol uh, with players who, you know, in some cases don't even want to wear visors uh, to come back and have to play in a full face shield, I think would have been a step too far to get them to agree with to it, even if it makes sense in a global pandemic. Indeed. And I kind of had a feeling this was coming when USA Hockey, the governing body of youth and amateur hockey in this country, said they weren't even going to mandate it. It might just be a recommendation. If they weren't going to do it, I couldn't imagine the NHL doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Dateline, Ryan Reeves. The, ba- the Vegas Tough Guy signs a new two-year deal with the team. Always weird to see contract signings when like literally nothing else is going on. Uh, but here we are, Ryan Reeves re-ups with the, uh, the Vegas Golden Knights. And, and again, it's, it's always fun to see, um, new franchises, which teams or which players kind of break out and become like stars within the fan community. And there's no question that Ryan Reeves is like a cult icon in, in Vegas. It does help when you league, lead the league in hits. Yeah. Hockey fans yeah. like that. New hockey fans especially like that. Um, but yeah, you know, honestly, this has been something that's been in the works for a while, obviously. And good for Ryan Reeves. He's really revived his career. Um, has a ton of physicality, as I mentioned with the hits. Yes, he's known as an enforcer, but I do feel like he has evolved his game. And he had some really big playoff moments with them in their long run in their inaugural season. So mm. love to see it. Love to see a guy getting taken care of. Dateline Lightning. I spoke with John Cooper this week, who was holed up in Idaho, uh, which was a, a, an interesting twist. Was it Coeur d'Alene? I think it might have been. Is that like a vacation spot? It, it, Wayne Gretzky has a house there. It is like the fancy, fancy. Um, there's actually an ice rink there. So it's kind of where the fancy NHLers who don't go to Montana go. That's amazing. 
It's just amazing yeah. to, to see all of his players like riding jet skis and, and living life uh, down in Tampa, and then yeah. like, he's in Idaho. Um, he told me that he doesn't think that the Lightning were, were the catalysts for the NHL's round robin format. The uh, AKA give us meaningful games before we play the qualification round teams because they'll come in like a playoff buzzsaw and we'll be getting de facto buys. Do you buy that? Do you, I mean, to me, like they are the ultimate cautionary tale now for like don't coast into the playoffs. I liked another thing he told you though, which was, hey, you know, we're getting a lot of the attention, but all the one seeds lost last year. It's not just <laughs> us. True. Like we were just yeah. the easy ones to pick on. So I do think he does have a point in that sense where if it wasn't the lightning, there would have been some other cautionary tale. They just happened to be the most, um, caricatured. Indeed. Finally, Dateline Top Chef. Emily and I, as you know, are big Top Chef fans. I, in fact, host a podcast on the Puck Soup Patreon called Mise and Pod, a Top Chef podcast, whose next episode will be up eventually because we recorded one and it unfortunately had technical difficulties. Uh, we got Aww. three chef testants left. We've got Brian Voltaggio, Melissa, and Stephanie. Um, my wife, Ruby, and I do a Top Chef draft. She has Volt and Melissa. Stephanie is my lone chef testant remaining. Who you got? Can I just ask? She must have been a low seat for you, right? She was my sixth round She was Henrik Lundqvist. She was like a sixth yes. round pick, and she made the, the final three. So it was a brilliant move. But I had I had I had uh, Gregory and, and uh, Kevin, Kevin Gillespie as my top two picks, and uh, mm-hmm. while they both made the trip to Italy, uh, neither of them made the final. So that was a bummer. Um. I do find Stephanie to be a great narrator of the show, and I do think that's one of the reasons I keep her around. She's awesome in those confessionals. Um, I like Melissa at this point. I was Team Gregory. I really, really wanted him to win. I thought it was his time. Um, but there's been two chefs who have just been dominant this entire series, and I almost feel like it would be cheap if Brian Veltaggio won because he's just been playing his own game all season. Like, I'm just going to play, make good food, even if it's not against the challenge, and skate mm-hmm. by not do well in any quick fires and just make it to the final because I'm pretty highly trained. And Melissa's been far more creative. As every Top Chef fan knows, it all comes down to how they're editing the season. And mm. as we enter the finale, you've got Voltaggio with the you don't cook food with passion edit. You have mm-hmm. Melissa with the like overall bio reuniting with your father. Kids used to make fun of me for bringing kanji to school edit. So, and like, now I've made kanji in two different uh, yeah. challenges. She's like, she's like clearly being set up to be the winner. But then you have this Stephanie, like, Bad News Bears underdog story where she's a caterer <laughs> who made the top three. And and there's a part of me that thinks that maybe she's getting the right edit. But we'll see what happens. It's been an amazingly good season of Top Chef, uh, and it couldn't have come at a better time with the, the self-quarantine and such. So kudos to our friends at Top Chef for making, for my money, the best reality show on television. Uh, outside of the ones that ESPN makes, obviously. I don't know what we make. Um, <laughs> that's the show for this week. Our, 30 for 30s? I mean, I don't, we don't, do we have reality shows? We don't have like a tough, we don't do like tough enough or like a, like a hard knocks mm. or anything like that. So maybe I'm in the clear. Um, our thanks to, uh, to Marty Biron for joining us. And of course, Chris Peters for joining us, our, our good friend, uh, talking about his Rumblebee story, which you should check out on ESPN.com. My column, The Wishlist, publishes on Thursdays and my other podcast, Puck Soup, where I say naughty words. Uh, is available on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily M. Kaplan. Madeline is the middle name. <laughs> Just like Chris. Follow me on Twitter. Check us out on ESPN.com. Give us five stars because you love us. Bye. Bye.
This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.